We had something kind of interesting happen for us uh, last week after two and a half years. We finally unpacked our last box from moving. Maybe you guys remember when this happened for you the last time that you moved. Now, I felt a little embarrassed about this. We have a friend from, uh, uh, from Africa who told us that you have two years to finish unpacking plus one year for every child that you have. So I feel like we still came well within our acceptable margins. It sure felt like a long time, though. And, uh, you know, you, this unpacking process took a lot of effort, and a lot of slow time. It's not like we waited two and a half years to unpack everything, though. It's not, we weren't just like laying on cardboard boxes, and I'd tuck in my girls with cardboard and kiss them and uh, 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 leave them out on top of the piles of boxes. Right? We unpacked things as we needed them. And then, once we got down to the things that we needed less and less and less, the space between the unpacking the boxes grew wider and wider and wider. So that finally took two and a half years to finally get the last one. The things that we needed the most, the things that we most urgently required and were looking to just forget to get by with, those things, of course, we unpacked first. So what is it that you guys tend to unpack first? For us, it was the kitchen. The kitchen was absolutely crucial. We have to eat. Our kids have to eat. Is that about the same experience for you guys, if the kitchen was the first thing that you unpacked? The order in which a person unpacks their stuff actually kind of tells you a lot about who they are as a person. If you're feeling awfully snoopy, you can, uh, you can ask them some questions or look around and see what's unpacked, what's not unpacked, what's being used, and what's being neglected inside of their house. You can guess a whole lot of things about a person only knowing that one piece of information. So let's, let, let's play, let's just try that out, right? Let's imagine a person who unpacks their books before they unpack their kitchen. Okay? That's the only piece of information we're allowed to know about them, that they unpacked their books before they unpacked their kitchen. What is this person like? Describe them to me. I bet you can. They're bookish, yes, absolutely. And a bookish person might otherwise be described as a? A nerd, yeah, they're probably quite nerdy. The computer probably wasn't very far behind when, it got, uh, when things got unpacked. We can even know kind of crazy, unrelated things about them, like uh, what kind of music is likely to be playing in that room full of books and that kitchen full of cardboard. Jazz or classical, you have the nerd mentality down pat. It's perfect. Yes, absolutely. We can even ascertain their musical tastes from this teeny tiny little bit of information. Why? Because it told us so much about this person's priorities. They valued learning over food. They valued books over the ability to provide for themselves. And we can do this with anything. We can do this with all sorts of good things, right? We can say that we know something about a person's identity. If a person unpacks their children's bedrooms before they unpack their own bedroom, we know that they regard themselves very primarily as a parent. Their parenthood is an important part of their identity. So just from seeing the order in which people do things when they move, we can learn an awful lot about them. The nation of Israel, when we join them today, is in the middle of a, an absolutely massive move. And it's been a hard move. 
because it began when their identity, their heart, was ripped right out of their chest. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came into the land, seized the people, looted the temple, and then finally returned and and tore God's temple down to the ground. This was a horrible uh, thing for the children of Israel to have happen to them. Consider how central God and his temple were to their lives. They named themselves after God. Joel, the Lord is God. Joshua, the Lord saves. Their names reflected their identity. They were tied to God. I would suggest, though, that there's maybe one other thing that we can see in the fact that the temple got destroyed. I would almost see in it a pinch of mercy or uh, fidelity uh, with God, right? As long as the children of Israel were going to be homeless, God was going to be homeless too. So we've got a little timeline of events that charts out to us uh, where we get to when we join the Israelites. 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He destroys the temple. It's left in absolute abject ruin. 539 BC, the tides change. Cyrus the Great comes in. He invades Babylon, defeats it, and takes it over as his own. He's much more sympathetic to the children of Israel, and in 538, he declares that the children of Israel are free. They can return to their homeland. About 50,000 of them do so. They go back, especially the, uh, 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 the children of Judah and Benjamin, they go back, and they settle in the land. They build houses for themselves. They plant crops for themselves. They grow fields for themselves. They try to provide for themselves. And time goes by and nothing happens. At 520 BC, that's where, we, uh, where Haggai enters into the picture. And that's where our text for today is going to be taken from. Haggai writes his book to the children of Israel. And it's about one single topic, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And then finally, in 515, the temple is completed, their identity restored, their heart is placed back again. We don't often talk about Haggai, and there's plenty of reasons for that. We don't actually know very much about him as an individual. We know he was a prophet, uh, but he frankly didn't write very much. The entire book is only two chapters long. Uh, With these shortened uh, church services that we've been having uh, over coronavirus, if you feel ripped off by the end of it, Open up your Bible to the book of Haggai. You will read the entire book in three minutes, and uh, uh, you'll, have, you'll have augmented some of that time. But that's one of the reasons we know so little, be, uh, so little about him. The topic of his book was singular. He was talking to the Israelites to get off their collective duffs and get back to work building God's temple. When you look at this timeline, check this out. 538 BC, they come back. 18 years later, nothing has been done. And Haggai writes his book telling them, this reflects your priorities. And God hasn't missed what your priorities are. One of the interesting features of uh, this book is that he repeatedly refers to God as the Lord of hosts. Now, that's a common phrase to use for God, but Haggai uses it, uh, you know, 
as his primary reference. Now, usually when we're talking about the Lord of hosts, we're amplifying a particular aspect of God. We're talking about God in his power. We're talking about God's ability to deliver a really heavy punch, if that's what he decides to. We're talking about the breadth of God's power and how it covers nations and how it covers the world. And he uses that repeatedly when he talks to Israel, and it quickly becomes apparent why. He's pointing out to the nation of Israel that with their priorities so badly out of whack, with their priorities so badly out of order, their denial in their home of a home for the Lord of hosts is causing all sorts of problems. He says, you have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. It's one of my favorite illustrations in the whole Bible. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. All this effort that you're doing, and you're just allowing it to be thrown away without, without a care. You've done work, and you're destroying the work that you do. When I read these verses, I kind of think about that, uh, that movie, um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah? I wanted to show an actual picture from Pirates of the Caribbean, but it's a Disney movie, and they have lots of lawyers, and they have a lot of time on their hands right now. Uh, so I thought maybe this would be simple. But we can talk about it at the very least, right? The uh, movie, you might remember the first one, the good one. Uh, am I allowed to say that? Uh, the first movie, uh, the uh, uh, pirates have stolen this treasure, and it's cursed them so that now... They can't get enjoyment out of anything. They eat food. It doesn't taste like anything. It tastes like dirt. They drink. They're still thirsty after they're drinking. Not just are they thirsty. They are parched to the bone, desperate for fluid. But it doesn't matter what they drink or how much they drink of it. They always want more. They don't have a foundation upon which they can enjoy anything, upon which they can accomplish anything. They don't have the basic equipment that they need to live. Israel finds itself in the same position without God. Before food, before shelter, before anything. Actually, Haggai specifically calls them out on shelter. They po he points out, while God doesn't have a home, you're living in paneled homes. He's talking them, uh, that they've built nice places for themselves, and God is still homeless. When we think about it, this just speaks to a long history of humanity, that we have this idea that if we put ourselves first. If we think of ourselves before anyone, certainly if we think of ourselves before God, and it's easy to rationalize that because God doesn't need anything from us. He's self-sufficient. That if we put ourselves first, then we will in fact come first. If we provide for ourselves, then we will be provided for. And every time that we do that, it works out terribly. You've got Adam and Eve. Ad I love this picture of Adam and Eve, right? He's like looking up at guys like this. Uh, but anyway, uh, you have Adam and Eve. They sin. They look down. They're naked. They're ashamed. They know they have to cover themselves up. And so what do they pick? Fig leaves. 
the stupidest covering that you could possibly think of. Have you ever felt a fig leaf? It's as rough as sandpaper. It's light as anything. A tiny little breeze is going to rip it to shreds. It can't do its job, and on top of that, even when it's pretending to do its job, it hurts, it's uncomfortable. God had to step in and made them, suit, uh, made them clothing from leather and fur, still the best stuff that you can have clothing from. When humanity tried to provide for themselves, they botched it. It took God for us to have what we needed. You've got Moses here. Moses had been told by God, speak to the stone and it'll produce water. Moses was feeling frustrated. He defied God, smacked the stone instead. Still got water out of it, but the water tasted terrible. He decided he wanted to try to be the one to provide for themselves, and they got something, but it was awful. Not something that anyone would want. You've got Absalom. Absalom decided that, contrary to God's endorsement, he wanted to be king. So he tried to overthrow his father David, and he ended up hanging in a tree by his hair full of pointy things. Right? The, people try to provide for themselves. Absent the Lord, it never, ever goes well. When you rob God, you rob yourself easy to look at these cases and see exactly where they went wrong. Hindsight is 2020, as they say, and never is that more clear than in the actual year 2020. But what about when we look at our own lives? When somebody looks at us and establishes an identity, when they look at our priorities, when they look at our unpacking order in our lives, what do they see up front? What is our primary identity? Maybe it's a good thing or something that everyone would consider to be a good thing. Father, spouse, educator, boss, excellent student, excellent employee. Where in the list is Christian? How strongly, how upfront in our life home in our unpacking order, is our identity as children of God. Haggai presents this to the children of Israel and then goes through this rather rapid turn. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth the sea, and the dry land. It starts off grim here. I will shake all nations. And what, but then all of a sudden it turns. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house says the Lord Almighty, and in this place I will grant peace. All these threats, and all of a sudden it looks like he's heading for another threat. He's coming in power, but that power is coming to deliver something different. Not judgment, but glory. 
Now, there's something that kind of jumps out that maybe is a little easy to miss in these uh, verses. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord God Almighty. Now, remember, Haggai's talking about building a temple here. And uh, if you recall from your Old Testament, this was just simply not the case. Is Haggai wrong in his prophecy here? You'll remember that uh, in Ezra 3 verse 12, it says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, that is Solomon's temple, right, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. They looked, they saw the temple, and just from the foundations, they could see this temple wasn't going to be the equal of Solomon's temple. It wasn't as good It was mediocre by comparison. So why is it that we see this little bit here? Haggai prophesying that this temple is going to be more glorious. It just wasn't, right? Here's Solomon's temple. Eventually, the temple was so uh, embarrassing that an unbeliever, King Herod, went in and repaired it. He was embarrassed for them by the mediocre temple that they have. He went in, and he augmented it, and he built it up, and he built it greater. Was this what Haggai was talking about when when King Herod would come in and expand the temple so that maybe it was closer to the glory of Solomon's temple? We know that's not the case. Right here, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine. It doesn't matter to God that it gets filled with silver and it gets filled with gold. So what is this special glory that this temple is going to be filled with? What is it to have glory? We've been talking about the Lord as the Lord of hosts. Armies certainly have a kind of glory. Armies have glory when they win, when they conquer. Individuals have glory inside of an army when they are heroic, when they are successful. The word glory in in these verses can be translated also abundance. It's looking for abundance, but an abundance of what? Obviously not stuff. God's already got the stuff. Let's take a look, because when we view this through the eyes that we have from our New Testament reading, knowing that it's attached to Christ, all of a sudden we can see that there are a lot of greater glories that are attached to this glory that God's presenting. First off, a greater glory between the New Testament and the Old Testament. Now, I just want to be clear. When I say New Testament and Old Testament, I'm actually referring to the Testament part, as in last will and testament. I'm referring to the promise that was made. The Old Testament, the old promise— was if you do these things, these common sense, easy-to-follow things, like don't kill, and don't steal, and don't bear false testimony against your neighbor. Common sense things for your own good. Obey them, and you're going to have eternal life. That was the Old, uh, that was the old Testament, the old promise. It sounds great, except for the fact that every single human being who, has li- who lives now or who has ever lived has failed with one solitary exception. And it's on that solitary exception that the New Testament got laid down, where God says, you failed to keep the promise that we made. You failed to keep the contract that we established. Here is why 
I will accept you into my home anyway. Here is how you are going to become holy and be able to stand into my pre- in my presence. You had an old promise, an old contract, an old testament with God. But there was a, and it was glorious. Eternal life for obeying rules that only benefit you? That's glorious. The New Testament was even more glorious, the one that was written in Christ's blood. You have a new church and an old church. Take a look at the uh, top part of our verses here. Remember that uh, this was a central piece of the identity for the uh, children of Israel? They had their church, and it was small. It was limited to their people and a few people who, you know, orbited around them and came to believe. Now, what will happen? What is desired by all nations— will come. The desire of nations. Something brings these people in, expands the church, grants it a great abundance, makes it a new church, which is far more vast than the one that they had before. What the new temple would give and what the old temple gave. The old temple provided for forgiveness of sins. But it was temporary, and it was a shadow of something far more powerful, something that was to come. Solomon's temple was a grand edifice, a beautiful thing to look at. And inside, animals were killed, and God counted that as forgiveness for his children, pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice. In the new temple, a better sacrifice was offered, a greater glory in the person of Jesus Christ. The lamb could carry a few sins for a few people at a specific time. Christ hung from the cross carrying it all. Every sin that has ever been committed by every single human being who has ever lived was weighing on him as he hung there. He was the greater glory. Those sacrifices of the Old Testament were glorious. They provided forgiveness of sins. They pointed ahead to an event that hadn't happened yet, but far greater glory was revealed in Christ, and that same glory can be revealed in us. So once again, let's visit that idea of glory. What is it to be glorious? To be glorious? How do we give God glory? We give God glory by honoring the work that he does. When we look at God, we give him glory by honoring the tremendous sacrifice that he made in order to cover up the problems we created. He sacrificed his only son. We give glory to Jesus by honoring the sacrifice that he made to carry my sin, to die my death, to live my life and swap it out for me to give me his eternity, to give us his inheritance of heaven. We give honor to him. We give glory to him by honoring what he did. We give glory to the Holy Spirit by honoring his work, his sacrifice, that even faith, the faith that's required 
to receive all these blessings that God has won, that even that isn't something I have to build, that the Holy Spirit comes and grafts it like an organ onto my body in order to receive the forgiveness from God. We give glory to God by honoring these sacrifices, by honoring this work. Now think back again to our epistle lesson and what glory was tied to there. Glory in reflecting God, faces unveiled. We don't cover ourselves up the way that Moses did. Our faces are open. We want the world to see the glory that we give God. Why? Because then it goes to all nations. And what they desire will come to them. What they desire? Forgiveness of sins, eternal life, reunion with God. And that fills this house with glory. The Lord of hosts, this emphasis on his broad, sweeping power, wants an abundance. That abundance comes from the depth of our honoring his sacrifices in ourselves and the breadth with which we share those sacrifices with the world and expand his kingdom. God won for us a glory right from the get-go. And over time, it has gotten greater and greater and greater. Through every catastrophe, it focuses us on his blessings. Through every shortcoming that we have, it focuses us on his power. And it takes our utter lack of glory and replaces it with the most glorious honor of all, that of Christ, which rests upon us. Amen.